Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 53 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Today is October 11, 2022. As promised, we are going to continue talking about shortages on the river and who gets what. I sometimes feel like Will Rogers in that I only know what I read in the papers. And what I have read said that the 1922 Colorado River Compact was divided up by seven states, and the negotiators were all white men from the seven states. No thought was given to supply any water to Indian tribes who had been here many centuries before the white man arrived. But what I read says tribes may have a right to as much as 25% of the river. Wow. Where will this 25% come from, and how will they get it? First, let's talk a little about the tribes and how the courts seem to be interpreting various treaties with the tribes. The 1922 Colorado River Compact didn't include a share for tribes. Now that the river is shrinking because of overuse, drought, and human-caused climate change, tribes want the federal government to ensure their interests are protected. We're going to talk about what those interests are. Much of the information in this episode came from an Associated Press article printed in the Colorado Sun on September 15, 2022. 100 years after the signing of the compact, many Native American tribes still struggle to fully secure water rights. A good example is water to serve tourists at the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is within the Wapi Indian Reservation. Roughly 630,000 tourists a year visit the Grand Canyon on the Wapi Reservation in northwestern Arizona. And this is the tribe's main source of revenue. And those tourists need water. So where do they get this water? Not directly from the river. Despite the Colorado River bordering more than 100 miles of Wapi Indian land in the canyon, the tribe cannot draw from it. Native American tribes in the Colorado River Basin have inherent rights to the water, but the amount and access for a dozen tribes or so hasn't been fully resolved and the tribes have been working on securing more water for decades. So where does the water that serves the tourist area come from? 3,000 feet below the north rim, water gurgles out of a cave in the canyon wall. Roaring Springs, located at the junction of two geologic faults, provides water for the entire national park. A high-pressure pipeline completed in 1970 carries water from Roaring Springs down to Phantom Ranch and then up to the South Rim. This system is old and needs to be replaced. 
a water settlement pending in Congress would give the Wapi tribe the right to draw river water, plus $180 million to pipe it to tribal communities and the main tourist center at Grand Canyon West. But don't hold your breath that this money will be appropriated anytime soon. It was the best of a bad deal, said Phil Wisely, the tribe's public services director. And the thing is, I don't think we could get a better deal, especially now. The Colorado River can no longer meet the needs of the 40 million people and $15 billion agricultural industry that depend on it. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation recently announced that Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico would see deeper cuts to their water supply in 2023. The agency is asking the seven western states to find a way to conserve more. There are 29 Indian tribes in the Colorado River Basin. These Indian tribes are, in fact, among the river's most senior water rights holders, a determination often tied to the date the federal government established a reservation. Tribal water rights, once they're fully resolved, could add up to about one quarter of the river's historic flow according to the Water and Tribes Initiative. Unlike other water users, tribes don't lose access to water when they don't use it. A 1908 U.S. Supreme Court decision known as the Winters Doctrine says tribes have the right to enough water to establish a permanent homeland. Often, Tribes give up potentially huge water claims in exchange for an assured supply and federal funding to deliver it. But that's the catch. The tribes don't have enough money to deliver water they might eventually be entitled to. To the northeast of the Wapi, the Ute Indian tribe has Colorado River tributaries flowing on its reservation east of Salt Lake City. While the tribe has secured some rights, not everyone agrees on how much more it should receive, delaying a settlement that has been in progress for decades. Ute Indian tribe leaders say they're tired of reiterating that the federal government needs to protect tribal interest, a duty laid out in treaties and other acts. Until you start to deal with the inequities or the injustice, you can never really have any momentum going forward, said Sean Chapus, chairman of the Ute Business Committee. You're not resolving that. And they are in a position to do that. And the they he is talking about is the federal government. Both the Wapi and Ute Indian tribe situation highlight the frustration of Native American leaders across the basin. Although their rights may not be quantified, they are real. The question remains, how do they prove it in court 
and get a document that says they have the right to the water. Other tribes that have secured water rights have pitched in to help their neighbors amid the prolonged drought by conserving water in key reservoirs along the Colorado River. Some lease or exchange water and use it to sustain the environment, sometimes creating revenues for themselves. But Jay Weiner, who represents tribes in water settlements, said it would be unjust to continue to rely heavily on tribes when they haven't had access to the water, while seven states in the basin have had access to the Colorado River water and been using it heavily. The tribes have already front-loaded and sacrificed by the fact that the basin states have been able to use huge amounts of water that tribes have rights to over the past 100 years, Wiener said. In a statement to the Associated Press, the Interior Department did not say how tribal water rights, which are federal rights, would be protected as the river's flow decreases. It is said it is working with tribes that are affected by drought. There is not a drop to spare at Grand Canyon West. A restaurant that overlooks the Grand Canyon has waterless urinals in the restrooms and faucets with sensors. Customers are served bottled water and food in disposable containers with plastic utensils, cutting out most of dishwashing. Even if the Wapi eventually get water from the Colorado River, those practices will stay in place, said operations manager Alvaro Cobia Ruizga. We see what's going on. We have to conserve water for our future, he said. The tribe has long planned to expand Grand Canyon West with a store, fire and police station, housing and elementary school to serve tribal members who ride a shuttle up to five hours round trip daily from Peach Springs and surrounding communities to their jobs there. But without a secure source of water for Grand Canyon West, it won't happen. Under the settlement pending in Congress, the tribe would be responsible for building out the infrastructure to deliver water. One of the biggest things with our settlement is hope for the future. And getting this, not for us at this time, but for the generations ahead Tribal Chairman Damon Clark said, Part of the reason the Wapi tribe did not prioritize the discussions on water rights long ago is because tribal members believed that water came with their land, said Rory Magenti, board chairman of the Grand Canyon Resort Corporation that oversees Grand Canyon West. We took things for granted, he said, like you knew you were going to eat. You knew the sun was going to come up. Tomorrow is another day. The settlement has its critics, including Wapi rancher Clay Bravo. He said the tribe should wait, negotiate a better deal, and develop groundwater resources at the same time. 
He's not satisfied with a lower priority water right that he equates to crumbs, given that the Wapi tribe has been on the land since time immemorial. How can we run a race and come in first and get the fourth place trophy? Bravo said. Any settlement must be just. But what is just? Even with secure water rights, tribes can't always fully put the water to use because they lack infrastructure. But they are getting some benefit from their water rights through leases and other arrangements to benefit the tribes. For instance, a pipeline eventually will reach the southwestern portion of the Hikaria Apache Nation in New Mexico through another tribe's water settlement to boost economic development in the region. Hikaria Apache has leased water it already has access to for energy production, recreation, and conservation, and to benefit threatened and endangered fish. Other tribes in the Phoenix area have leased their water to nearby cities. The Colorado River Indian tribe, whose reservation sits along the river bordering Arizona and California, doesn't have the legal authority to lease its water, though a bill is pending in Congress to authorize it. It's our sovereignty and beneficial rights of our water, the full beneficial rights of our water, said tribal chairwoman Amelia Flores. We want to lease. We don't want to sell our water, and that's the difference. The Ute Indian tribe wants that same ability. The tribe asserts rights to 550,000 acre feet. A settlement negotiated 30 years ago recognizes about half of that. The state of Utah's position is that's the number we're comfortable with. I think he's talking the half of that. And we think that does more than enough to satisfy the claims of the Utes, said Utah Deputy State Engineer Jared Manning. But the tribe hasn't ratified the settlement. The Utes have sued in federal court over access to water. A judge ruled in one case last year that the tribe waited too long to bring its claims against the federal government in Utah. What? Sounds like another raw deal for the Indians. Daniel McCool Professor Emeritus at the University of Utah said the larger question is whether the Ute Indian tribe has been treated justly and whether funding for water diversions have been on par with non-Native American interest. There's a reason why the tribe doesn't have much water and why almost all the water in the region is being used by white people said McCool, who studies tribal water rights. Look at who got the money, the Central Utah Project. Who got the water? Ask yourself that and ask, does this look fair to you? Tribal members have posed this question for decades. Shouldn't the first inhabitants of what's now the United States 
have the oldest, most secure water rights? Inevitably, others will lose water they've grown accustomed to using as tribes gain access to it. People have been taking our water. Are they taking it legally or illegally? Magenti said. The argument from the other side is, hey, it's capitalism, free enterprise. That's where they've got us. Ownership is where it's at. Until you have a piece of paper, it's not yours. Daniel McCool has studied and written extensively on problems with Indians accessing water they were granted with their reservations. It is complicated and, of course, revolves around money to access the water. McCool summarized some of the problems in Indian Water Settlements Negotiating Tribal Claims to Water. I encourage you to Google this paper for a more in-depth understanding of the problems Indians have with gaining access to water that should be theirs. I am quoting some of his comments now to give you some ideas as to the problems involved. For most of this century, American Indian tribes have been going to court in an effort to protect their water rights. Their claims are almost always based on the doctrine established in the 1908 Supreme Court case of Winters versus U.S., which held that Indian tribes have a right to water that was implicitly created when the reservation was established. Thus, Indian reservations have a federally reserved water right to sufficient water to meet the purposes of the reservation. In the years since Winters was handed down, literally hundreds of cases have been filed claiming reserved water rights. The tribes won many of these court battles, but this did not mean they could actually gain control over water resources. Rather, it often meant that tribes were awarded rights to water, but they did not have the financial means to develop and use that water. At the same time, the federal government was quite busy helping non-Indians develop and use the waters that were claimed by Indian tribes. Politically, it proved nearly impossible to stop these upstream water users from diverting rivers and streams that originally flowed through or past Indian reservations. Politically, this means those with the votes win, and the Indians have had little or no representation in the state houses or in the U.S. Congress. Another bum deal for the Indians. Many court victories have had a hollow ring to them. However, the constant threat of lawsuits kept many non-Indian water users apprehensive. After 70 years of acrimonious litigation, both sides began looking for an alternative to endless court battles. During the Carter, Reagan, Clinton, and Bush years, there was a strong push to negotiate deals 
rather than fighting it out in court. Although the courts may have awarded more water to the Indians, there was the realization that courts could not award money to get water project built to bring awarded rights to places on the reservations that needed water. But negotiations approved by the U.S. Congress could come with money. The allure of a settlement is still attracting many tribes to the negotiating table. Currently, the Department of Interior has 32 negotiating teams in the field and other tribes are waiting for their turn. The Office of Management and Budget and some members of Congress view settlements as a cost-cutting device. They want the cost of each settlement to be limited to the government's legal liability if the case were litigated. In contrast, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Interior Department view the settlements as part of the trust responsibility. To them, the settlements should be funded at a level that adequately meets the government's moral obligation as trustee. And all funding issues are debated in Congress. No one can predict how those go. And now there are huge environmental conflicts. For many years, federal and state governments built environmentally damaging water projects that diverted water away from Indian reservations so it could be used by Anglos. Because of environmental laws, the age of big, expensive water projects seems to have ended. Instead, the government is concerned about the fate of endangered species, wetlands, wilderness, and recreation. Thus, when Indian tribes attempt to write a water development project into their settlement, they run headlong into environmental laws. Daniel McCool concluded with these statements. Just a few years ago, negotiated settlements were seen as the wave of the future, a new era in Indian-Anglo relations that would heal centuries-old wounds and permit tribes and non-Indians to work together as neighbors. Now, a more realistic attitude prevails. Some tribes have become disillusioned, realizing that negotiation means not only gaining something, but also giving up something. The chairwoman of the Ute Mountain Utes alluded to this recently. We had language in the settlement that gave us what we wanted, but that got watered down because so many people wanted something. Another Indian spokesperson made an even blunter statement. If we want something done for our lands, we have come to the conclusion that we must do it ourselves. Despite the problems with implementation, funding cuts, and environmental conflicts, tribes will continue to be interested in negotiation because the courts are much less receptive to Indian water right claims than they were in the past. Today, it is very risky 
to take a reserved water rights claim to court, either at the state level or to the U.S. Supreme Court. Indian attorney Gene Whiting spelled out the stark reality. While the results of settlements are not completely encouraging, the risk of litigation appear much more significant than they have in the past. In some cases, tribal decisions are being driven not by the fact that negotiations are so much better, but because the results of litigation are potentially so much worse. Ultimately, the settlements are much more than just water settlements. They are, in a larger sense, sovereignty settlements because they decide issues of control and destiny. They involve water marketing, land acquisition and use, administrative control, and culturally sensitive water uses. And in nearly every settlement, the tribes must relinquish their right to future claims to reserved water rights forever. Thus, the settlement era is, in effect, a second treaty-making era. The first treaty-making era was concerned with land. This one involves water. If reservations are going to serve as viable homelands, they must have both. Wow, sounds like the tribes continue to be taken advantage of. Difficulties associated with implementations, funding, and environmental conflict will continue in future settlements. Although negotiations seem to be the way for Indians to get water, it hasn't worked out over the last 20 to 30 years. This has to be mind-boggling and frustrating for Indians. We all empathize with the Indian tribes, but all users of Colorado River water will continue to be mightily challenged. I wish I had answers. At least we are more aware of the problems. We will continue to explore challenges in other states in the next few episodes. But for now, even thinking about this is exhausting. I am going to stop and go relax by my favorite mountain stream. I invite you to join me. See you next time.